Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. It's only ever when we're in proximity to whiteness that we get to speak of progress. You know, it's the first black scholar to to do this, the the first black copper, the first black business. It's always framed in terms of our aspiring to whiteness, our, our becoming white and becoming successful on their terms. And so I think progress and future, there's a danger in the discourse around in terms of what it tells us about ourselves. First Nations women look to the future in conversation with Professor Chelsea Wadigo and Amy Maguire. Indigenous women, white feminism and power, colonial violence and self-determination. What are the obstacles and pathways to a new future led by First Nations women? These were the core issues explored during the conversation First Nations Women Look to the Future, held as part of the 2022 All About Women Festival, hosted by the Sydney Opera House. As we continue to look back on some of our most important conversations of the past year, this week you'll hear from Professor Chelsea Wadigo and Amy McGuire. Both represent a new generation of strong Aboriginal voices who are challenging the status quo and setting a First Nations agenda for the future. Chelsea Wadigo was a Mananjali and South Sea Islander woman born and raised on Yuggera country in southeast Queensland. First trained as an Aboriginal health worker, she is an Indigenous health humanities scholar, prolific writer and public intellectual. Her book of essays, Another Day in the Colony, was published last year. Amy Maguire is a Durrambul and South Sea Islander woman from Rockhampton in central Queensland. A freelance writer and journalist, she has a strong interest in writing about justice, culture, heritage and feminism. We begin the conversation with Professor Chelsea Wadigo as she reflects on her formative years growing up in southeast Queensland. So my name is Chelsea Wadigo. Um, my family uh, sort of stretched from northern New South Wales to North Queensland, uh, but home for me growing up was in the outer suburbs of Brisbane in a place called Runcorn. Um, and I'm the youngest of four kids to a black father and white mother. And I definitely think um, what shaped um, how I see the world is uh, the conversations that we had as, as kids at the kitchen table. Um, and whoever was sitting at that kitchen table at any given time. And I, I you know, as a parent, um, five kids, that kitchen table is so very important for us um, to have those conversations because I knew that our parents knew that when we would leave the house that we would encounter an, an imagining of us that didn't align with who we are as a people. And um, so I had this... The, the strong foundation was our kitchen table growing up in our home and this sense of... Knowing our place, knowing our place culturally, knowing our place politically and socially as well, and in a way that we never accepted um, the inferiority um, that that continues to be imposed upon us. So we had this kind of... Dad used to always say, like, you know, never bow your head. Um, never think you're less than. At the same time, he would say, we might be better off than people, but you're never better than anyone. And so, and we were working poor, so I didn't get a sense that we were better off than anyone. Um, <laughs> so it kind of always struck me as odd, but there was this sense of always um, knowing a place in, in a relational way, in a respectful way, not in a hierarchical sense. And I've just been very fortunate to... Um, encounter people who and be surrounded by people that once I left the house 
for work or um, in life generally, I've, I've found myself with people who share those similar values, that sense of knowing who we are and where we come from and working from that basis. Um, I certainly had a... I had to go to Sunday school growing up, so certainly there was a Christian kind of influence around social justice, um, which, of course, is contradictory to the church. But anyway... Um, <laughs> but as a child growing up, I was always caught... And I was always really annoyed by the contradictions, whether it was from um, Sunday school and what the church does um, to how mum got treated and how dad got treated. And so I was always curious about these contradictions, well, pissed off about the contradictions and outraged by it. And I refused to be quiet about it. And I was very fortunate, like dad was very, this big figure in our home and, and you know, as kids, you have to know your place too as kids, but he, I was the one kid that got to argue with him at the kitchen table and I grew up reading the Courier Mail and debating the Courier Mail with him and he, he pushed me to, to go, go him because he wanted me to be able to, to stand, stand on my own, own feet and so I'm just grateful for that grounding um, that I could leave the house each day and never bow my head and never accept the idea that we're less than. Wonderful. Amy. Hello. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I guess, um, yeah, I'm Amy McGuire. Um, I was fortunate as well to grow up in my traditional country, Durumbal country, up in Rockhampton in central Queensland, and I grew up there my whole life. Um, and I guess what really influenced me is that, you know, um, it was only later when, because I left Rocky when I was young, when I was about 17, to start a cadetship at the National Indigenous Times. Um, but I think growing up I felt like a lot of the truth of where I was living the stories on country were very much concealed and I think that's part of obviously the colonial project the erasure of black presence on black lands Um, and so for me um, what has influenced me has been the stories but particularly stories coming from country um, and stories told across the country mostly told through the testimonies of black witnesses and the reason I talk about sort of that concealment um, is because it, it obviously had a purpose. But um, when I went back home like a few years ago now, it was specifically um, to do a story that was based on country and Durumbal country. And it was only when I was back on country that I started to experience these signs that were leading me certain ways and to certain places that I hadn't seen before. And I realised that those signs were coming directly from country it was like the ancestors were speaking to me and that's when I started to sort of, and it seems like it's come a long time after when I first began, you know, writing about these issues, but um, I sort of realised what has influenced me has largely been um, black witnesses that I've been fortunate to meet in all types of contexts all across the country, but particularly in my own country, Um, and understanding that those stories were always there, but at the time I didn't have, you know, the understanding of the um, ability to see it in the way that I'm seeing it now. So I guess that's a really round way to say that I've just been um, really influenced by other mob, not just only on Durumbal country, but all of, over across Aboriginal nations, all over across um, Australia. Um, and that's really informed what I'm doing today and where I'm hoping to go with a lot of my work. Yep. <laughs> The purpose of the session is to be forward-looking, so I've actually asked Chelsea and Amy to maybe share some reflections just on that rather large theme of looking as First Nations women looking forward. And I did it open-ended in a in a 
in a particular way, deliberately, because it's very easy at conferences like this to ask First Nations women to divine their future in relation to what that means with white feminism and the white woman's agenda. And I didn't want to do that at all. So I have asked them to more fully think about the things they'd like to to speak to uh, so that we can really hear uh, First Nations women's perspective from an undefined position. So I'll start with you, Chelsea. You're up again first. Look, I I, I guess the words of um, Dr. Annie Watson, who's been a big influence on me intellectually, politically and and culturally, um, she talks about the the need for us to be as forward-looking um, as we are, you know, for our future to be as long, uh, see our future as far ahead of us as the past behind us. And I think we need to, but there, there are some challenges in that, in the sense that we're dealing with death on the daily and, and if, you know, the events of Friday and, and that verdict, it, it's hard to think of a future at times when death is a daily thing and when we're denied a future um, we've always been denied a future when I mean, we were deemed destined to die even the Australian Human Rights Commission's current national anti-racist framework positions us as an ancient people as a people of a past and so on the one hand there's this we've been trapped in this in a past place um, and so we've been denied that future and so I, I know for mob at times it's hard to think about a future when we're dealing with death all the time. Um, but the other challenge, I think, we're thinking about future is the way in which this idea of future is tied to this, 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 this idea of progress. And, um, and I struggle with, with um, how progress is used upon us in ways that aren't useful for us. So on the one hand, I think progress can be used to kind of maintain the status quo. You know, so we're told to, well, look how far you've come as if, you know, we should settle for things as they are. Um, and that's not to disrespect the, the, um, how far we have come as a people, um, but there is a danger in the discourse of progress around that. I think on the other side, this idea of progress as movement, as, as forward moving, um, it's only ever when we're in proximity to whiteness that we get to speak of progress. You know, it's the first black scholar to, to do this, the, f- the first black copper, the, the, the first black business. It's always framed in terms of our aspiring to whiteness, our, our becoming white and becoming successful in their terms. And so I think progress and future, there's a danger in the discourse around it in terms of what it tells us about ourselves. Um, you know, growing up in a working poor home in the outer suburbs, we were never raised to try and transcend our position. We were raised to refuse that location that they placed us in, but never to escape from it. Um, and so when I think of future, I think of a black future, not a future that, um, where we become more like whitefellas or more like settlers, um, but a future that requires us to be in an ongoing fight. And I think that's really challenging for people to accept that our future is always going to be a fight. And because our future is about doing what those those before us have done for us, and that is to hold a front line in a war that's never ending. So we may not advance, but to hold the line is something so important that we need to do as ancestors for those that come behind us. And it's hard work because you don't get the wins and you don't feel like we're moving, but to stand still, to still be here, to be sovereign, that is the winning in the settler colonial project. 
the refusal to forget, the refusal to um, concede, the, re- the refusal to forget who we are. And so there's power in that, and we only get it, um, that, that black future is only predicated upon black collectives, because that's where our power lies. And you see any institution will disband the natives, disperse the natives, break up these black collectives, whether it's in schools, higher ed, um, health and social services, they'll, dis- they'll mainstream us as a sign of progress and success. And because they know our power lies in, in the critical black masses. And it's in those, those spaces we get to theorise and strategize how to heal and fight at the same time. Because that's, that's, that's hard work. Um, so for me, a black future is in, is in black power, is in refusing to bow our head and to you know, hold our heads high and hold our fists high every day. I should just say, as a cheeky aside, I had a chat to Chelsea earlier and she said, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. I just knew it was going to be good, whatever it was. But I do just want to press you on one thing. Um, you know, you are a professor in, in the area of health, Indigenous health, and in fact, you are recreating a discipline around that. And I just wondered if you could share that work so that people can understand the depth of which you are actually in there at the coalface trying to change the positioning and the conversation? Yeah, so I have a day job um, (laughs) doing the work. Um, So, uh, well, in terms of the Indigenous Health Humanities agenda, which Amy is also part of that collective, it is about building a a black intellectual collective that that works towards survival in a local and global context. Um, And it's it's interdisciplinary. It's about bringing the, the various tools that we need in order to do this kind of work. And one of the areas I think I'm most passionate about is around health justice. Um, we hear about deaths in custody, but we're not hearing so much about deaths in the health system and mob being turned away from emergency rooms of preventable conditions. And now as a health researcher, I wasn't tra- trained how to fix that. As a health researcher, I was trained how to, um, you know, take blood pressure and blood sugar levels and, you know, um, quantify health behaviours as though it was somehow our fault. Um, but health justice brings together the political scientist, the race scholar, uh, the lawyer... Um, and puts the intellectual work to work for legal and political purposes. And so um, it's, it's building an intellectual collective that is not of service to the academy, though we're rating it for the tools that we need to do the work that MOB have called us to do. Great. It's really important work. Um, and you should follow, be following that work because, um, as I said, Chelsea works very actively at the coalface and is engaged in a, um, a lot of big issues and in really important cases, as is Amy Maguire. So this is a good chance to hand over to you, Amy, for you to share your thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would just lead on to what, um, lead on from what Chelsea was saying. You know, she mentioned that, um, you know, the ongoing fight and the ongoing war. And I think we saw that most recently yesterday with the horrific decision that was handed down um, in the NT around um, the murder acquittal. And in the past couple of months, we've had two murder acquittals, um, Aboriginal woman JC and Geraldton, and then Mr Walker in the NT. But I was particularly struck yesterday um, by the comments made by Uncle Ned Hargraves um, outside the steps of the courthouse, where, um, as Chelsea said, they called for a ceasefire. But also I was particularly struck by how he was putting forth different conceptions of what justice looks like outside of the white man's courts. 
Because as we know, that we never see justice within the white man's system. We know that the justice system is part of this colonial apparatus. Um, and so he was calling for things like no guns in communities. He was calling for self-determination. He was calling for sovereignty. And so over the past couple of um, years, I've really just been thinking about what justice means for us. What does black, just, black justice mean and what does it mean to fight for, for justice? And fundamentally, it looks so different to what they tell us justice should mean. Um, you know, we've seen my research areas specifically um, in media representations of violence against Aboriginal women. And that really came from working on stories in which Aboriginal women had died. Um, and just as I said in my introduction, there are actually stories that happened on my home country where I saw after it happened um, in the media, but then in the courts, the violence that had been inflicted upon them was reproduced again in media reportage. Um, and they were then disappeared. Um, and there was never any justice for them. Um, and in not only was there no justice, but there was enduring injustices. On one of the cases, um, which involved an Aboriginal woman named Linda, who was a very strong, smart, cultural woman who lost her lives in my um, home country alongside Tunaba, which is the river that runs through Rockhampton. Um, the Aboriginal man who was given a life sentence for um, her murder was actually, we found a great deal of evidence to show that he was innocent. The other story was a story around an Aboriginal woman who died in 1975 named Queenie Hart. Um, and the man, the white man who most likely committed that murder and left her on the same river um, on the banks of Tunaba had his charges dropped before any trial. Um, and so when I looked at these cases, I wondered how did we talk, how do we talk about these cases in ways we don't reproduce that continuing colonial violence, which you've talked about, Larissa, in relation to Eliza Fraser, how the these media representations are in themselves violent and an ongoing um, colonial violence perpetrated against our women. And I realized that the answers of that in lay in um, really not only the life stories of our women told by families and loved ones. Um, but also the stories that are on country, um, the ways that we ensure that Aboriginal women are not disappeared, that we presence them in life. And I see that in so many cases that pop up in which, you know, Chelsea always talks about hope and that we shouldn't um, hope. And um, for me, that was a really important sort of mind-blowing thing to think about because I, I see even after... Um, you know, the murder acquittal in JC's trial, but the recent murder acquittal um, up in the territory, you know, Aboriginal people don't stop their fight. They don't stop their resistance. Instead, they formulate new strategies and are always strategizing and always theorizing in ways that are not apparent to, for example, the academy or not visible to the mainstream media that, you know, these resistances are seen as violent, overly emotional, angry, irrational. Um, but I think the work is being done currently to make this violence incredibly visible, but also strategize to continue to fight against it. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm really pessimistic about um, things about, you know, the future and everything like that. But I just really encouraged, particularly by the resistance, the continuing fighting and the agency that we always see. Um, even amongst grief and amongst trauma. You know, there's just these amazing examples of strength, even following these horrific decisions, you know. Um, and the really tragic things is that, you know, they compound and they continue happening. You know, we're continually having deaths in custodies, um, continually seeing the violence um, inflicted upon Aboriginal women. Um, and we see no justice in the white traditional sense. So I'm really encouraged by the fact that I think... Um, 
so many Blackfellas all around the country are finding new ways to articulate um, new forms of Black justice in whatever, you know, ways they are and whatever tools that you're using to fight against it. There's so many different weapons um, that are being employed. And that's why I just wanted to pick up what Chelsea said about the ongoing, um, you know, war. Um, the way white media and white people see war um, is fundamentally different to the way that we're using the discourse of war. We're using the discourse of war against a continuing occupying force, whereas they see war as internal, black-on-black -black crime, which is the often um, what they charge us with when we talk about violence particularly. So, yeah, I'm just, uh, for me, it's about coming up with new forms or new ways to articulate black justice um, in the continuing fight um, against this ongoing violence. One of the things I find... Extraordinary in in the work that you both do is that you work at the coalface of really difficult issues, and, and and as you've both highlighted, often it's about death, and preventable death, unjust death, and yet both of you work from what is a strengths-based approach. No victims. You're always celebrating the idea of sovereignty and placing Indigenous voice. Um, Having said that, I want to pick up on something that Amy said about the reaction to um, the verdict in the Kumanjai Walker case, which, in case you haven't picked up on this in the audience, has been something that I think has uh, pierced the heart of almost every First Nations person in the country in terms of what it means... Um, in a human sense, but also what it says in a symbolic sense. And I'd had the um, privilege of actually interviewing Amy, uh, interviewing Chelsea earlier in the week, um, and she had said something about the concept of hope, which um, Amy had alluded to, um, and, and the lack of it and how to see it, which actually didn't help me process the emotion, but it helped me think intellectually different. And I wonder if, Chelsea, you could share your pessimism around hope, um, because I think it's actually a very powerful and enlightening construct. Yeah, look, um, fuck hope. Um, <laughs> so I had to get one in there. Well, I know. Uh, <laughs> you see how, how Amy and I danced around it? <laughs> I was going to say it. Um, uh, <sighs> And it's come. It is it, it, that that position that I arrived at with it, which other blackfellas have arrived at it long before I did. You know, um, came through um, this idea that um, some of us have been raised with that if you just work hard enough, even if you're ten times better, that we can transcend. Um, that we can overcome. And um, there are just too many occasions where I'd been betrayed by this idea of hope. Um, and I've seen so many other blackfellas brutalised by that betrayal who, you know, worked longer as the teacher aide being, you know, treated like crap in the school for the love of community and the hope that the school would be a better place for those kids, even if they weren't their own kids. Or the health worker who suffered the daily indignities or the black copper who thought if we just hang in there in the hope that, that we can affect some change in this violent system that we're, you know, that we're, we're in. And I've just seen blackfellas broken by it, broken by hope. And that does not mean that we give up. We just change the strategy. And our strategy for living cannot be bound up in the validation from settlers who, who are here on the basis of not seeing us, who refuse to see our humanity. The number of criminal inquiries where you see families on the steps of coroner's courts um, talking about we want to be treated like human beings. They see us as animals. I, 
you know, I think about Ricky Dougie Hampson's family talking about this. I think about the um, Four Corners report and um, the auntie there talking about Doomidgee Hospital saying they see us as animals. Um, and so I, I think we just have to accept that this is how things are. And if we accept that, then maybe we'll strategize differently in a way that preserves black bodies, black souls, black minds, um, so that when we go home at night, our kids can feel the strength and power of who we are as a people, that we don't come home broken. Um, and so when I say fuck hope, it's followed with be sovereign. It's not that hope is all we have. Mm. If we remember who we are and where we come from, then, then we operate from power. And so it was that letting go of trying to, to, to buy into the lies that the settler tells us about what it means to, to be in this place, whether it's progress and all these things, and to operate on our terms. And it was, you know, the gift of um, Dr. Annie Lilla Watson, who, who, in the course of writing the book, really um, helped me remember who the fuck I was in a moment where I was fighting two race discrimination cases um, and where I was able to walk away from one because um, my dad used to always say when things would happen, he'd go, well, let him go, see what happens. Just let him go. And it was that kind of thing of, let him go. That's, their system's always going to be like that. They're showing us every time, every verdict, they're telling us who they are. Um, and that can't be the terms in which we know ourselves. Um, so some people get wild with me on, on the F-Hope chapter. I think Patricia Collins on a train ride to Sydney was rousing me over it. Um, and because some people confuse hope and faith. I don't see them as the same thing. Um, and I think that's because of my upbringing. Um, if you know who you are, you don't have to wait for someone to, for that moment to arrive because you're in it all the time, irrespective of who they are and what they do. That's Professor of Indigenous Health at Queensland University of Technology, Dr Chelsea Watergo. She was speaking earlier this year at the All About Women Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. You also heard from freelance writer and journalist Amy Maguire. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. This week, we're taking a look back at the conversation First Nations Women Look to the Future. It was held earlier this year as part of the All About Women Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. More on that shortly, but right now, some music from Chris Phillips. People, my people, Aboriginal people, don't forget what we're fighting for. We Aboriginal people of this land. People, my people, have a regional people. 
That's Chris Phillips with his take on the Guri classic, My People, My People. Earlier this year, Professor Chelsea Wadigo and freelance writer and journalist Amy Maguire were featured in conversation at the All About Women Festival. We pick things up with Amy Maguire and her thoughts on the importance of storytelling and creativity for Indigenous women. Yeah, I mean, as we know, Aboriginal women have been silenced since invasion. And that played a purpose, obviously, because, you know, our presence posed a fundamental threat to the colony. Um, But even in ways that Aboriginal women are allowed to speak, we are still silenced. So specifically, I've just seen, you know, over the course of just, you know, looking at so many different stories, particularly when it comes to violence, we are only allowed to speak about violence in certain, in very limited parameters, um, and usually in ways that obviously preserve, as Chelsea was saying before, you know, the status quo told through the discourse of pathologization, where our men are seeing as inherently savage or criminal. Um, and so there are so many different silencing tactics that are enacted against Aboriginal women that are in themselves violent. Um, and so for me, a lot of the... Um, work I've been doing is really around critiquing journalism as a whole. I'll just give an example, you know, after Black Lives Matter, um, where, you know, tragically we saw we saw the bystander footage of George Floyd being murdered by a police officer and we saw, you know, the momentum and the outrage pouring out from Australia who were concerned about Black Lives overseas but not Black Lives here. Um, I wrote a piece about that very issue for, um, like, my independent blog Substack um, and it, you know, I I got feedback from one journalist in particular who had been writing, and it was particularly about, you know, um, not talking about the cases like JC's case, like Mr Walker's case. And I remember I got a um, message from one journalist who had reported on JC's case particularly, um, and she thought it was to do about, you know, the lack of attention, the lack of writing, because she had written that story. So I went back and I looked at her story and I realised, well, actually, she had written a story, but by by the standards of good journalism was a good story, but it still had the impact of silencing JC. It was told through the language of the courts that had criminalised her throughout her whole life in ways where the violence that had actually been inflicted upon her by the state was made invisible. And so she was seen as the criminal. And that's the logics that continued into the trial and which played a part in the murder acquittal. And so I realised that the mainstream media, um, and I think we're seeing it with, you know, every single, you know, case around violence, is that they are not ill-equipped to tell stories of colonial violence. So I started to think about the fact that we need a new way of doing journalism completely. You know, we don't have to continue to um, be framed by, you know, how they want to tell stories of us. Storytelling is incredibly powerful if we're able to do it in a sovereign way um, that involves um, prioritising the voices of black witnesses um, and not, you know, one of the big things I've realised is that, you know, particularly around Aboriginal women who are no longer here to speak for themselves, there's this idea that um, uh, we must humanise um you know, as a tactic against the silencing tactics. And I realise that in itself as a silencing tactic, it is to humanise, um, is to make them seem as worthy of mourning um, that is most palatable to white people um, and the way white people see them as, as worthy. And so that's why I started to come up with, you know, new ways, sovereign black storytelling ways of um, telling these stories um, in ways that can be used as a weapon for communities 
um, because black journalism is not, um, it's not objective, it's not unbiased, but it, it has to be used in service of mob. It has to be used as a weapon rather than appealing to white media um, and abiding by the standards that, you know, good journalism is supposed to be. Um, so that's sort of where I am at the moment, you know, how black media can be used to push for um, black justice um, in the ways that we want to recognise it in. Sorry if that's like a total all-around way of answering that question, but I've started to see like the mainstream media is totally, you know, complicit also, um, almost like a form, um, another colonial apparatus. Um, and so I see black media particularly as a resistance to um, mainstream media as well. It was a great answer. It reminds us to just that um, First Nations perspectives can be the best at critiquing what other people think of as normal, but also that our strategies um, can provide new ways of thinking about what outsiders can think of our intractable problems. But I just want to see if you wanted to add anything to that, Chelsea. I mean, yeah, I, I just, you know, we only had to see how quickly Channel 7 and the Australian moved to, to render someone who was murdered as the violent perpetrator. Like, that was just so disgusting. As if Friday wasn't hard enough, mm. I, I can't imagine what it was like for the family to have, uh, have to, you know. And, you know, we all watched as family came out of the courtroom and spoke with such power and such strength and to suggest that he wasn't wanted the very next day... Like, I mean, when, when Amy talks about the violence of mainstream media, it's, it's not a metaphor. It is violent. Um, and and, and the, the beauty of what, what blackfellas bring to this place is yeah, not just a kind of, you know, insisting on our humanity, um, but a way of doing that. And when you, you, know, you read Amy's work, you feel the presence and the power of mob, even in the most tragic of circumstances. Um, and that's, that's, that's the important work that we do for each other, not for them, but for each other, mm. um, to remind us who we are, who we've always been in life and in death. Nicely said. And uh, I've just got test question here, so that's why I haven't been asking any other questions. Um, so apologies if, if um, you've put a question through. But I did actually ask... Um, Chelsea and Amy to perhaps just because we've been sort of celebrating the wisdom and words uh, of our, our First Nations women to just maybe read something of their work to share it with you. And Alison did send a poem through so we can read that at the end. But um, we might start with you, Amy, if that's okay, if you can share some of your writing with us. Um, sure. Yeah, I wasn't. I was tossing up between two um, pieces, but I think I'll just go because I, I think it has relevance to what we've been talking about today. And it was sort of the end of a piece I wrote a while ago um, around black witness, white witness, um, and it was specifically around um, you know the horrific comments made by Joe Hildebrand and Kerry and Kennelly a while ago. Um, but I'll just I'll just read the ending. Um, when white witnesses such as Hildebrand and Kennelly speak of violence in Aboriginal communities. They are talking about a certain space in Aboriginal Australia, and that space is remote communities. After all, it is not often an Australian journalist is a war correspondent in their own country. In order to define their fictional war, they must set up their own borders or retrace the spatial boundaries enacted by force during colonisation. Citing David Goldberg, Canadian academic Shireen Razak writes about the spatial configurations of colonial societies and how racial categories have been spatialised. 
in the Canadian context, but which we, we could equally apply to Australia. He wrote, colonisers at first claim the land of the colonisers as their own through a process of violent eviction, justified by notions that the land was empty or populated by peoples who have to be saved and civilised. In the colonial era, such overt racist ideologies and their accompanying spatial practices facilitate the nearly absolute geographical separation of the coloniser and the colonised. When the white witnesses of the mainstream media speak on violence, they are talking about the violence that exists in this space, in the space of the colonised. This space is black space. It is a space where violence is routine, where the rapes of Aboriginal women and children, as Kennelly puts it, are normalised and so become zones of degeneracy. They are the others who cannot speak, but who can be spoken of and who are in need of saving. Because they live in these spaces, their bodies are marked. Because they live in these spaces, their bodies are marked by their by this otherness, and the judicial and media responses are shaped by their race, class, and geography. The most disturbing element of the white witnesses' testimony is that it can be a form of violence. This form of violence can have real material effects, and we saw it most pertinently in the form of the Northern Territory intervention. But it also has a reality in the silences. The absences in the news columns and broadcasts around the country where Aboriginal women are killed or go missing. Having been identified with what has been marked as a violent space, they are seen as disposable, and the violence perpetrated against them is portrayed as inevitable. In comparison, those who live in white spaces live in zones of normality, where the same social problems, namely violence against women and children, are not seen as the defining characteristics of the people who inhabit them. This is where the fear comes from. The Melbourne CBD is seen as safe, respectable white space, despite it being on unceded Aboriginal lands. And so a protest of tens of thousands of Australians, black and white, rallying to recognise the true bloody history of this country is perceived as threatening. These protesters are hard to comprehend for a white Australia so accustomed to designating Ab Aboriginal affairs to the outback, to use Kennelly's words. How can black fellows be so articulate, so vocal, resistance and hardworking, when the images they know of Black Australia are of welfare dependency, of violence, of child rape, of battered women. In order to divert the gaze from this resistance, these white witnesses claim that these protesters are not the real Black Australia. Instead, attempts are either made to dilute their Aboriginality or to claim they simply do not care and are thus the enablers of violent men and silences of Aboriginal women and children. In the words of the white witness, the real Black Australia exists out there in the borderlands and so deficit language is used to secure the confines of that space. Aboriginal people in remote communities are either victims or perpetrators. They are never afforded any complexity despite the diversity of histories, languages, cultures and traditions. Remote communities are also denied their own voice, including their own right of protest, even though some of the most significant actions in history took place in remote Australia. Where would we be without the Gurindji walk-off at Wave Hill or the Pilbara strike? By confining our fake concerns to the borderlands, the white witness not only positions themselves as the only credible witness, they enact their own forms of violence um, on the people that they claim to speak for. Um, imagine if any other Australian community were defined as a war zone and its people as warring, dysfunctional and rapists over a long period of time. Imagine that you then tell them your protest means nothing. You should care about the real issues, the fact that your women and children are being raped when these women and children are, their, are your cousins, aunties or friends. Hildebrand and Kennelly are not alone in their characterisation of our communities. They are simply the latest in a long line of white witnesses, the witnesses of trove, of parliament, of anthropology, of breakfast television. As white witnesses, their testimony, however inaccurate, however violent, holds power. But it is crucial to recenter the voice of the black witness. Like the white witness, the black witness also uses the language of war. 
While the white witness uses it to stage an attack, the black witness will mount a defence because it is not the white witness's war they want to talk about. It is the real war, the continuing resistance against an occupying force. We use this language to raise our young people and elders as resistance fighters and warriors in ways that do not victimise, but instead instill strength. Our communities are not war zones of killing, but epicentres of survival. Our women are not helpless, but on the front lines of battle, and our children are not the objects of neglect, but the very reason for fighting in the first place. While the white witness thrives on accounts of the brutalisation of black bodies, most commonly of black women and children, the black witness pushes these same black women to the forefront. They are the ones with the megaphones in the centre of the Melbourne CBD, in the very heart of white respectable space. While the white witness uses the language of war to disconnect us from our past, the black witness uses it to connect our past to the present. And that is the power right there. Now we're close to time, so I just want to give you a chance to read something of your okay, work. Sure. And I'll just say, as, as Chelsea's opening her book, she's not reading from Another Day in the Colony, which if you don't have, you'll be purchasing uh, after this. Again, there's no signing, but if you see Chelsea, I'm sure she'll be happy to give you a little signature if you're masked. And if you have a question, I'm sure she's, as you can see, she's very generous, so uh, she may be up for a bit of a chat. Sure. Right. Okay, I'll read fast, hey? Oh, take your time. Um, so I'm reading from an essay I wrote for Seven Stages of Grieving. Um, shout out to Shari, Wesley, Deb Malman and Elaine Crumbie. Um, the beauty of black death and black lives. I know grief. I know the grief of loss, the loss that arrives for us all, death. I remember my dad died. It was a beautiful time. Us kids had all returned to the family home in the days leading up to his passing as adults sleeping on the floor of the lounge room, the floor that we had laid on, played on and fought on watching TV every night. Never then we could have imagined our return to it as adults with kids of our own. The floor felt harder as we slept on it between our rotating shifts through the night, sitting with our dying father, reading the Bible to him with a steady voice that disguised the pain of hearing his laboured breathing. And I say it was a beautiful time because we were there together on our terms in our family home, a place of safety and comfort and most importantly a place of belonging. On the night he passed, we all said goodbye and we laid his bed next to mum's and we told him he could go. We left the room and within minutes he left us. And we felt him go and strangely we felt an overwhelming sense of love and peace wash over our home. We sat up and told stories about him as he laid there and we laughed and cried over memories of a man whose body was before us. And it was a beautiful time. We were relieved he was no longer in pain. We were grateful for the gift of a father that loved us and provided for us. And we felt fortunate to have had him live to the age of 62 years. We knew as an Aboriginal man he had already cheated death in his living. While Dad's death was something that was peaceful and beautiful, the grieving was something different. And I remember the weeks after his funeral when we were required to return to a world that had decided it was time to move on, insisting that we pick up the usual pace. And I remember being angry that the world had seemed to have forgotten him, or at least our loss of him. I was resentful at the unspoken expectation that 14 days was sufficient enough time for getting over grief and that I should return to all of the insignificant shit I'd been given a free pass on. But eventually I did, and I learnt how to live without my dad as though that was a normal fact of life. Maybe it's an acceptance that all life must come to an end that I was able to move on from my grief. But there's another grief of loss that I struggle to live with, even though and perhaps because I'm required to accept it as a normal fact of life. It is the grief of loss visited upon blackfellas. You see, settler colonialism offers a whole different kind of grief. Grief from a loss not of lo- only of loved ones, but of land and an entire way of living. It is a suffocating loss, an unjust, traumatic kind of loss because of how violently it is visited upon us. Settler colonialism represents a never-ending kind of loss because the settlers are never, ever going home. 
in our grief, we cannot return to our home that we once knew for the same sense of belonging, and any sense of gratitude in our grieving too is unimaginable. Settler colonialism generates a grief that is unrelenting because the loss itself is repeated. Each new policy era heralds a new articulation of black dispossession for a new generation dressed up as benevolence, or worse, reconciliation. Our grief neither heals nor leaves. It accrues, accumulating like interest, though no one is getting paid. There is no will, no assets to speak of because the rent was never paid. Each generation instead is straddled with a greater debt, a greater burden of a greater grief, of a greater loss. It's in its everydayness that we afforded no grace periods, no grieving time, not even 14 days. It's kids to school, parents to work in safer communities. It's been the mantra of the state for at least a decade now, a policy articulation of the everyday racist assertion of get over it. And all this time, they haven't closed gaps. They've simply tracked our deaths. They've walked over bridges not to reconcile, but to move us on from their shameful deeds. But their shame is our grief, and their presence marks our loss every day. Thank you. That's Professor of Indigenous Health at Queensland University of Technology, Dr Chelsea Wadigo. You also heard from freelance writer and journalist Amy Maguire. They were speaking earlier this year as part of the All About Women Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. To take us out this week, we'll leave you with some music from Dan Sultan. Here he is with his song, Kimberly Calling.
that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we pay tribute to the incredible life and career of the late Uncle Archie Roach. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. Thank you.